It is sweet, the bliss, the thought of our sin, not in part, but the whole being nailed to the cross. That's something I needed to hear as a preacher this morning. Man, I can be a very tough man to live with. And the McGraws know it well, and they had a good dose of it this week, and I needed to hear that. If y'all are, uh, if any of you come this morning, maybe visiting, or you're here thinking this is a place of a bunch of fixed folk, you need to keep looking. Go try another church, because it's not this one. There's um, nobody fixed here officially. We're all in process. We're all um, being sanctified, being saved, and man, it is a, um, it is a journey, so I'm thankful um, we're a hospital, better way to think of us, hospital where we're getting good medicine week by week. Uh, I'm going to start with prayer, and then we're going to climb in. We're going to dedicate our prayer time this morning. A lot of times we pray for other churches or pray for somebody that may, in, a, in the body that may be sick or ailing. But I want to dedicate our, just a few minutes that we have in prayer time before we begin our message to our brothers and sisters that are in Iraq right now. Man, what a terrible time thinking about this through the lens of what we considered last week, a faithful husband and wife, mom and dad, Amram and Jacobed. Let's pray for the Amrams and Jacobeds who are in Iraq right now, who may be watching their own children being martyred in front of them. Let's pray. God, I don't even really know how to pray about ISIS. Um, I gravitate toward the vindication psalms and love the thought of them just getting hammered and destroyed. And then I think about forgiving them for they know not what they do, and I don't really know how to pray for these guys. I do pray that what they were doing will stop I pray for our brothers. We pray for our brothers and sisters over there who I hope have been well-equipped for this moment. Gracious. I hope they've had steady and potent and life-transforming messages week by week that have prepared them for this hour. I pray that they will be in our faithful Amrams and Jacobeds who are trusting you to their last breath and entrusting those that are most treasured to them, their own children, to you. And God, I'm thankful that as these ISIS people are doing what they do, they're thinking they are defeating something and all they're doing is escorting people right into reward rich reward. God, we pray that they will be faithful. Pray that they will be on our minds and our hearts. Thankful that you are at the helm. Thankful that you are allowing this for some purpose, that you are working all things together for good for those who are called according to your purpose. God, I pray that we are well equipped this morning not knowing what's in store for us. We are thankful, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
I don't really know how to pray. I just, I think we need to pray. I think we need to be lifting up those folks. They are brothers and sisters who we'll spend glory with, eternity with. And they are, man, they're in harm's way right now. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. It adds a note of sobriety to what we're doing this morning. It's pretty sober. Usually, we may have, we may joke around about some things, but we're pretty sober about our quipping times. But I think that, considering the news, it's especially sober this morning. Hebrews chapter 11. We've been working through the book of Hebrews for the last few years. In Hebrews chapter 11, over the course of the summer, we've been working through a series of snapshots, we're calling them photographs, of the heroes of the faith in chapter 11. One of the things that I've really enjoyed about these people is they're very human, um, very normal when you really get to know them, you climb into their lives, their stories. Uh, they're not superheroes. Some of them are pretty exceptional. Joseph is sort of a superstar. I'm glad it's not a chapter full of Josephs, but I know, I'm glad there's some Jacobs in there, some Samsons, guys like that. It's encouraging to me. Uh, Moses is sort of at the superstar end, but um, I think we're going to see some real cool, cool things from Moses this morning. He's who we're considering. We're going to really look at one little paragraph, verses 23 through 28. Now, we considered verse 23 last week, so we're not going to really give any time to that this morning other than for the sake of context. We're going to read a passage. Now, let me prepare you for where we're going in these next few minutes. I said it's a sober morning. It's important that we have a potent message that happens to fall on a morning where we're really not playing this morning. I mean, we really usually don't play, but I mean, we're really not playing today. So we're going to be doing some work together in these next few minutes because there's a lot at stake. We have a really thick, heavy, not complicated, just important paragraph to consider in a key figure in the, the story of the gospel. So considering Moses seriously and carefully this morning will be important. I'm going to give you a list of passages that you can jot down to be sort of ready to go to. If you have multiple bookmarks, some of the ladies come in here with all kind of crazy stuff in your Bibles for study. Some of the dudes may too. I'm not knocking on dudes that may have a bunch of stuff in your Bible. But Hebrews chapter 11, obviously, where we're starting. Acts 7. Exodus 2, Psalm 69, Exodus 12, and then we'll land back this morning at Hebrews chapters 10 and 13. And I'm going to be going to some other places. I'm just, this is economy of effort this morning. I, the, I want you to be prepared for these, and we'll share the, the load this morning, and I'll, I'll carry some of the weight as you are prepared to go to those passages. What we're going to do really is just unpack this paragraph. There's a lot of preparation, but I want to, we're about to take off, and I want to prepare you to buckle your seatbelt and know what's going to happen in these next few minutes. So um, as we unpack this little paragraph, it's sort of broken down for us. The Hebrews preacher does a nice job of setting up a sermon shape for us. There's four by-faiths in this paragraph. The first by-faith has to do with Amram and Jochebed, Moses' mom and dad. I told you we're not really going to consider that much, just for the sake of context. The next three by faiths are going to be the outline for our morning. There are three more by faiths in that little paragraph, and you'll see them when I read it. And we're going to unpack each of those by faiths one at a time. The first one is going to be the biggest unpacking, the most work. The second and third will be progressively lighter. And then we're going to look at some application points. I had somebody say to me this week that, hey, man, I had a tough time taking notes the last few weeks. And a lot of times I'll find that I don't have the same number points that you have. and So I want to help you with that this morning. 
right? So that's why I'm giving a very detailed plan. <laughs> All right, we're going to unpack the paragraph really in three by faiths, and that's going to be our plan for the morning. Unpack it and then apply with those three things that we unpack. Okay, a lot of prep. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was a beaut, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Okay, we, we considered that last week. Beginning in verse 24, this is the first by faith. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Verse 27, the second by faith we're considering this morning. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And the third by faith, verse 28, that we'll look at this morning. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. What's really cool about this paragraph is it's sort of like a cliff notes for the life of Moses. For really a couple of books of our Old Testament are summarized in these four little by faiths in this one, one little paragraph. The first one that we considered again last week, by faith he was hidden by Amram and Jochebed. Now turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is going to be a little bit of a home base for us today. This is context building before we look at our three by faiths. This first by faith, we looked at last week again. Now, as you're turning to Acts chapter 7, let me just tell you, in the next few weeks, we're going to be appointing some new deacons. And the kind of men that we're looking for to be deacons are the kind of men that are salty and potent and strong like this dude I'm about to read from. Stephen's last words, Stephen's sermon before he's stoned to death. He tells the story of God. He doesn't talk about how crummy his life was before Jesus. It's a great model for an evangelist. He doesn't, not that there's anything bad about sharing your testimony. He's not sharing his testimony in this, this potent sermon. He's sharing God's story, and it's beautiful. He's well-saturated, well, well acquainted with it because it's the content of his last sermon. Let's look at it here in chapter 7, verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, this is the promise that was made to Abram of what would happen to his offspring in the future when they would be sojourners in a foreign land, they would be afflicted, which God had granted to Abraham. The people increased and multiplied in Egypt. He made him that promise too. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Joseph who? He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. That's where we went last week. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And then beginning in verse 3, when he was 40 years old, something happened. So this first little paragraph here, or this paragraph that we read in Acts 7, summarizes the first 40 years of Moses' life. What I appreciate about what, what, what Stephen did, God did this, but Stephen communicates it, 
is Moses' life is broken down into three 40-year blocks. The first 40 years, he's a prince of Egypt. You're about to, we're about to look at that. The next 40 years, he's on the lamb. And the last 40 years, he's leading the people out of Egypt. Okay, It's nice how it breaks down. All right. Now, last week we considered the faith of a good old mom and dad. That's all context for where we're going next, considering these next three by faiths. I'm going to read verses 24 through 26 again of Hebrews chapter 11. Okay, we're going to unpack this. Again, this is the meatiest portion of the morning. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Something happened at the age of 40 for him. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. We're going to look at that something in a minute. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The first 40 years of Moses' life, he's raised in Pharaoh's household. He is like Egyptian royalty. I found some early historian accounts from uh, Hellenistic historians, ancient Hellenistic historians and ancient Jewish historians that gave some details about Moses. Now, we don't know how much of this is true. It could be pretty sensational, but it's pretty awesome. Listen to this. Josephus, Josephus, he's hard to say, enlarges on Moses' outstanding wisdom and exceptional beauty and stature and describes a victorious expedition which he led against the Ethiopians as Egyptian commander-in-chief. Wow. So in his first 40 years, he rose to be, I mean, if this is true, the commander-in-chief of the Egyptian army. Philo, this is pretty cool, Philo credits him with proficiency in arithmetic, geometry, poetry, music, philosophy, astrology, and all branches of education, in case we missed anything. (laughs) Wow. Eupolemus, a Hellenistic Jewish writer, makes him the inventor of the alphabet, (laughs) which the Phoenicians acquired from him and the Greeks from them. So our alphabet would have come from Moses, if this is true. I found another account that said that Moses also invented the Internet. (laughs) Amazing. Al Gore is so not true. (laughs) All right, we'll be careful with that. Artabanus, another Hellenistic Jew, says that Egypt owed her civilization to him. Now, this guy was like a superstar. He was either quite the young man or quite the grown man. If any of this is true, not either, if any of this was true, he was a superstar. But at the age of 40, he refused to continue to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. An event brings that into focus, and we're going to look at that event in just a moment. We're going to break this down according to this passage. How did he refuse? There's some things that are right here in the passage, just served up. The Hebrews preacher just serves them up for us. First, he refused by choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. He he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Of God. Remember that the passage we just read tells us that another Pharaoh arose that dealt shrewdly with the Israelites, forcing them to expose their infants. 
some passages over here in Exodus chapter 1. If you have that handy, you can look. Give us some more details. Exodus chapter 1 verse 11 says, They set taskmasters over them to afflict the Israelites with heavy burdens. And verse 13 gives us even a little more focus there. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Just think about this for a moment. You're a prince of Egypt. you got things going for you, man. Everything is going your way. And yet you refuse to continue in that and instead take on the mistreatment of this people. Who would do this? Think about it for a moment. Who would do this? Moses did, but he did it by faith. He didn't do it by reason. Faith and reason don't always line up. He did this by faith, reason, and sense. And logic would say, stay put, Moses. Stay the course. You're set for life. Toe the line, Moses. Things are going your way. God is blessing you beyond measure. We might even use that excuse. God's blessing you beyond measure. Toe the line, Moses. But he chose, rather, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And secondly, we can see from this passage that he chose rather to be identified with them rather than the Egyptian royalty. He chose to be identified with them. Turn to Exodus 2. We'll look at this story. This event that happened at the age of 40. Something happened at this point that changed his heart. Beginning in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 2. One day, when Moses had grown up, we can know he's 40 years old, according to what, what Stephen helps us with. He went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. His people. Pay attention to the wording there. He's writing these words. Remember that. He's the author of the first five books of our Bible. So he's writing this story about himself and he's calling them at this point, the age of 40, his people. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, in case you've missed it. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Don't you love the wording there? Again, knowing that Moses wrote this. He fled from Pharaoh, fled to Midian, and he sits down by a well. Now what's cool here at this point in the story though is that he realizes he could not continue to be identified with both. He's either Egyptian or he's an Israelite. Are you an Egyptian or an Israelite? Must have been that quiet voice in his head and he said I will not be and cannot be both a citizen of Egypt and a citizen of God. 
So he opts for the Israelites. I want you to just think about this for a moment and imagine how foolish this must have seemed. Can you imagine what his buddies from Egyptian high must have said about him? What in the world was Moses thinking? They may have said it to his face. What in the world are you thinking to throw all this away? Man, you had everything going for you. Can you imagine what 40 years worth of relationship collecting in Egyptian royalty would have said to him? Can you just climb into that moment for a minute and realize this is a real dude? 40 years of life. Some of us have reached that point and then some. You can make a lot of relationships and a lot of friendships in that period of time. And knowing that most of them at this point probably said, what in the world are you thinking? That is stupid for you to throw that all away. I can't help but wonder if Moses deliberated over whether or not he could do more for his people continuing on as Egyptian royalty than as a member of an enslaved people with no rights of their own. Think about that for a minute. And you can't, I mean, can you imagine how he might deliberate over that? (laughs) Couldn't I just continue on doing this and do more for my people than giving up all my rights and becoming part of an enslaved, oppressed people? But he refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter. Here's another way he did it. He refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter by choosing mistreatment. We've already considered that, but choosing mistreatment rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin. Bring that into focus. Rather than all that Egypt had to offer. He chose to be mistreated rather than enjoying the trappings of Egypt. Let that hit you for a minute. He didn't give up on just an ordinary old life. And go move on into mistreatment. That would be pretty impressive. He went beyond that. And considering that he went from privilege, power, influence, riches. He stooped quite low when you really consider it. And he looks back on all that he walked away from. And he considers it the fleeting pleasures of sin. He's equating life if he, should he, had, should he, he have continued in that life with the fleeting pleasures of sin in the lap and luxury of Egypt? I want to tell you right now, there's nothing wrong with privilege and means. Joseph proves that. Joseph was faithful, and he was a man that experienced privilege and means. It's wrong, though, if it keeps you from identifying and being vocal about your identification with God's people. And this is the point where it's a choice to be made. Am I Egyptian or am I an Israelite? When I read this passage, thinking about the decision that he made, the identification with this people, choosing rather to be mistreated with them rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin, I couldn't help but think of 1 John. Don't, unless you're really fast, you don't need to turn there. Some of you are really fast, you're like sword drill experts. Listen to this passage. 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can hear that and go, okay, I'm not a world lover. <laughs> I'm good. But listen to what it says next. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I couldn't help but think about that passage, bring into focus what world-loving looks like. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and another, the NAS says, the boastful pride of life. Pride in your possessions. Look at all that I've got. And I'm looking at that saying, man, worldliness is pretty easy to come by. Loving the world is pretty easy to come by. And this guy, Moses, had 40 years of a front row seat to a great opportunity to world loving. But he gives it all up. He didn't love the world. I can't help but think of Matthew 13. The sower, the seed, and the soil's parable is a treasure to me. It's one of the first things we considered as a church. We work through this passage considering these different types of soils. And I'm looking at this guy and looking at how he moved and thought, man, that is good, rich, thick, dark, loamy soil that received the seed of the kingdom and bears fruit. I had a conversation with somebody this week about our context. I'm convinced in our context in Greenville that what we've done with this parable of the sower, the seed, and the soils of the rocky soil, or the, the path, the hard soil, where the seed falls and Satan takes it, the, the birds take it, and Satan takes it. It never finds any root or any purchase at all. And then there's the three other types of soil, the rocky soil, the thorny or weedy soil, and then the good soil. In our context, what we've done is we've folded all three of those soils together and say they're not different. Because what happens with one of those soils the thorny soil and the weedy soil, it says according to Jesus that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and it never bears fruit and the plant dies. But in our context, it's not uncommon to go to somebody's funeral. The thing I enjoyed about the one I went to last week is I didn't hear this, but I've heard this at other funerals where people did not live a life that was dedicated to Christ, yet they had some sort of event at some point in their life and there the preacher is standing before a room full of people that should be hearing the truth and instead, what they're hearing is, at least he's going to be with us in heaven. All three of those soils are just synonymous. If there's been any sign of life at any point, we're just going to call them synonymous. The thing I enjoy about Moses is he shows us a beautiful picture of what rich, dark, fruit-bearing soil looks like that could have been weedy soil. Had a great opportunity to be the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches could have choked this joker out. But he was faithful instead in good soil. I enjoyed that picture and enjoyed that contrast. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Here's another way he refused, right from this passage. And this is the place where I want to spend most of our morning. This is the treasure and the marrow of the message this morning. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter by considering the reproach of Christ better than all the treasures of Egypt. He considered the reproach of Christ better than all the treasures of Egypt. Now, this reproach of Christ is not the reproach that comes from Christ. Like Christ is some sort of cosmic killjoy, and he's just poking Moses, or he's poking you. That's not what this is. The reproach of Christ, what this means from this passage, is that Moses experienced the reproach 
that Christ experienced. Now, I wanted to spend some time unpacking what that word means, reproach. It's not a word that we use very often. And in fact, here's the fun thing that I got from my studies. I'm looking at the word reproach, and I have some little tools that help me look at the original Greek word. And I'm looking at the original Greek word because I want to see what the original Greek word means. So I, I click on it, and it takes me to the, to the English translation. And guess what it gave me? Reproach. I'm like, oh, thanks a lot. I really appreciate that. So I had to go to some other passages. And this is so much more informative than some little helper in my computer that helps me distinguish what that word means. Some other passages really bring reproach into focus. Romans chapter 15, verse 3 says this, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproach of those who reproached you fell on me. That's where he's talking about, Paul in this case, is talking about the reproach that Christ experienced. Now, here's the cool thing. He's quoting a psalm. So we can go to that psalm and get the flavor of reproach. So turn to Psalm 69. I told you to have a finger in there or be ready for there. This is why we're going to Psalm 69. In order to consider what Moses experienced, we have to make sense of what reproach looks like. We need to know what to look for. Psalm 69. The cool thing about Romans 15 is Romans 15 tells us that Psalm 69 is about Jesus. We can go to Psalm 69 and see, okay, this is about the anointed one. This is about our Savior. Listen to what it says in Psalm 69. We're getting the flavor of reproach from this psalm. In verse 4, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me, without cause. So just start grabbing some things that will help you understand reproach. The first thing you can grab that helps you make sense of what reproach is, more than the numbers on the hair on my head are those who hate me without cause. So hatred without cause. Jot it down if you're a note taker. Reproach, hatred without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. Add to hatred without cause, attacking, being attacked with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O oh Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O oh God of Israel. Now watch this. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach that dishonor has covered my face. Add to the list. Dishonor. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Put that on the list. A stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. I hope you can make that connection to the Gospels. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. And here's the last one that we'll gather on this reproach-defining list. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. Let that image hit you for a minute. Reproach of Christ means that you're going to be the talk of those who sit in the gate. That's the gathering place. Ours might be Facebook. Right? It's sort of the public square. It's become the virtual public square. 
I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. Take in those details as we consider together the reproach of Christ through the lens of Moses' story. Other passages give us some other words that could be associated with reproach. Shame. Mocking is another word. Shame, mocking, hated without cause, attacked with lies, the talk of those in the gate, treated like an alien and a stranger by your own family members. Keep those things in the back of your mind as we look at this together, as we consider together the life of Moses. Go back to Acts chapter 7. We're going to do a little parallel study together, a little parallel work. This, I would say, is probably the hardest work of the morning. If you think it's been hard so far, then you just you have to kind of kind of toughen up. We're going we're gonna to do something hard here, but it's going to be good. All right? I'm going to rally you. This will be worth it, I promise you. Acts chapter 7. Let me get there so we can look at this together. Acts chapter 7. We're going back to this salty deacon to see what he says about this life-turning point at the age of 40. Let's see what he says about it. We're going to consider some events in Moses' life to get a sense of what the reproach of Christ looks like. When he's 40 years old, in verse 23, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing, this is, this is Stephen's account of what we read a moment ago in Exodus chapter 2, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who's wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of of two sons. This is the first little example of reproach. This must have left Moses miffed. You get that sense from Stephen where he's like, don't they understand that I'm here to be their deliverer? I'm going to take care of my people and be their deliverer. And they're in essence saying, who do you think you are? The oppressed, the people that he's there to deliver, the people that were on the receiving end of him killing the bad guys. Who do you think you are? You're going to kill us too? That's reproach right there. Man. And this then sent him into exile for 40 years into Midian. I'm just going to share with you right now, just kind of personalize this a little bit. This was very personal for me as I'm seeing a guy that's wanting to take out the bad guys, take down the giants, so to speak. There are times in the life of the ministry here in the last 11 years where I've wanted to do that, or the elders have wanted to do that, or we as a church have wanted to do that. And man, we've taken a beating for it. To take down the giants of false teaching, for example. And then other people say, who do you think you are? Who put you as judge over us? The letter I sent out a few weeks ago that we sent to the pastors, the fellow pastors of the Hunt Bad Association a few years ago. Man, we took a beating for that. The one I sent out a few weeks ago, 
I'm going to tell you right now, Christy and I have taken a beating for that. A beating. That seems very familiar. And then I'm thinking, wait a second. It happened to Jesus too. The character of the Gospels is the, Saris, the Pharisees and the Sadducees saying, who do you think you are? Joker. Man, that's why it just seemed very familiar. Let's look at some examples. Turn to Numbers chapter 12. I want you to move through Numbers as I move through John and just look at a few snapshots together. I promise you this will be worth it. I don't have any doubt that you know that. I just want to assure maybe our visitors that maybe this is your first time really working through a kind of a, a heavier message. And that's not knocking anybody else's messages. I'm just saying this word. That I know this is heavy for some folks. Examples of Moses bearing the reproach of Christ. Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he married a Cushite woman. Aaron and Miriam were Moses' brother and sister. Family, let that hit you for a moment. Is any, can anybody hurt you more than your own family members? <laughs> I mean, think about it. Let that hit you for a moment. Moses' own brother and sister come after him, and they say, verse 2, and 2, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. You can read the rest of the story later if you'd like, but I just want you to get the flavor of reproach. He's bearing the reproach of Jesus right there. Think about this passage in John chapter 7, verses 2 through 5. Now the Jews' feast of the booths, Feast of Booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Jesus' brothers. You know he had some brothers and sisters, apparently, like real brothers and sisters. The Catholics don't believe that. They believe that Mary stayed a virgin forever. But we believe, according to that, it's true. But we believe what it says. His brothers came after him. He's going to the, the Feast of Booths is coming, so his brothers said to him, this is Jesus' brothers, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret. Can you hear him mocking? No one works in secret, Jesus, if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And the next verse says, for not even his own brothers believed in him. Moses was bearing the reproach of Christ. And Christ bore that reproach from his own brothers and his own family members. Thought he was a kook. The thing that I appreciate about this is it doesn't say in the Gospels that Jesus bore the reproach of Moses. It says as Moses, according to Hebrews, bore the reproach of Christ. The real measurement there, the real standard for reproach is going to be Christ's life. So as we're looking at Moses' life, we can see little shadows of the massive version that Christ experienced. Here's the next one. Numbers chapter 14. Actually, Numbers, number 11. Numbers chapter 11. I'm going to keep you right here in Numbers for just a couple pages. Look at verse 1, Numbers chapter 11. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Okay, they've crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. Sinai is quaked. By this point, they're eating manna. Food is dropping from the sky. Bread, breakfast. 
dropping from the sky. Okay, there it is. Waters coming from rocks. I mean, really cool stuff is happening. Some amazing stuff. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of the place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong, I think in a, a, another passage says a wanton craving. A strong and wanton craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumber, although we had to make bricks, <laughs> and we got beaten, you know, and enslaved, but we had fish. It cost nothing. Oh, and the cucumbers, ooh, they were delicious. The melons, oh, how about the melons? The leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at, the food that falls from the sky. You look at it and you go, man, that's so ridiculous that they're grumbling and complaining with full bellies of free food. Consider this in John chapter 6. This is after Jesus has fed the multitudes with loaves and fishes. All they could stuff in their gullet. Full bellies. And listen to what happens in John chapter 6, verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. <laughs> what? Because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Here they grumble about the one who fed them with loaves and fishes just the day before. And there they're grumbling with full bellies, the Jews. You might expect that. You see the Jews, it's sort of the established Jews coming up against Jesus throughout the Gospels. Well, his disciples did too a few verses later. It says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense to this? Man, Moses faced 40 years of grumbling and complaining from the Israelites. And Jesus sure had his share of it. Let's look at the next account. The people rebelled in Numbers chapter 14. This is after the spies are sent over into the promised land, beginning in verse 4. They come back with the report, some of them giving a false report. Only Caleb and Joshua gave the true report that, hey, we could take these guys down. God's on our side. Chapter 14, it says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. By this point, they're eating manna and quail. So they got the meat that they wanted. And the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, here's the sad statement. Let us choose a leader and then go back to Egypt. Egypt. Here's the reproach of Christ. He's bearing the reproach of Christ there. Let's see what the reproach of Christ sounds like and looks like. Here's a few snapshots. In John chapter 7, verse 40, 
It says, when they heard these words, some of the people, Jesus is preaching here. He's exposing truths about being the light of the world, about being the living water, these sort of truths through the Gospels. And it says that some of the people said, this really is the prophet, but others said, this is the Christ. And some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Look at this. So there was a division among the people over him. And some of them wanted to arrest him. But no one laid hands on him. There's a theme throughout, especially in John. Division, division, division. When Jesus is preaching, when he's doing what he does, when he's leading the people out of Egypt, so to speak, there's division and rebellion. In the next chapter is what I call the revival gone bad. You've heard it before. Mid-chapter in verse 30, as he's saying and teaching these things, many believed in him. But the context does not change. And the last verse of the chapter says, So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The revival gone bad. (laughs) Law. You should have just stopped right after they believed. Fill out the little decision card and let's go home and celebrate. But he kept on preaching. And by the end of the sermon, they're ready To stone him. Man, the reproach of Jesus is all over over the Gospels. Consider just a few chapters later. He enters Jerusalem on the celebration week of Passover. And they're singing at the beginning of the week, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, lauding him with palmetto leaves and worship. And a few days later, the same mouths are saying, Give us Barabbas. The reproach of Jesus. Man, does it sound familiar? Does it sound like that passage we read in in Psalm 69? Does it sound like some of those words that we considered in reproach? Shame, mocking, hated without cause, attacked with lies, thought to be a stranger and an alien by your own family members, and the talk of those in the gate. Let's look at one more. One more. Turn over the next page in number 16. Man, this is a sad one. We've looked at this before and read this story before. It's a pretty awesome story. It's like a showdown at the OK Corral right here, boy. You can almost hear the whistle in the background. It's an awesome chapter. But take in who the people are in the story. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi. Take in who the people are in this story. And Dathan and Abiram and their sons, sons of somebody took men. Pay attention to who Korah was related to. He's a son of Levi. Korah is a Levite. Korah, this guy we're about to read about, Korah, a guy that led a rebellion against Moses, was supposed to be one of the guys that helped Moses and Aaron lead the people. And here this guy leads a rebellion. They rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They get the influential guys on their team. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do only the Levites get to serve? Why do only you get to go into the tent of meeting? 
Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Who do you think you are? Is what's taking place in that chapter. And sadly, toward the end of the chapter, after the earth, after the showdown, after the earth has swallowed Korah and Dathan and Abiram and all their families swallowed and then burped. After all that, in verse 41, on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Gracious sakes alive. The reproach of Jesus is just crazy. But I want you to think about this, what happened in the Gospels. A man that Jesus called, a man that Jesus taught, a man that Jesus fed with loaves and fishes, and who knows what else over the course of a three-year ministry. One of his 12 disciples, one that he'd sent out, one that he had equipped and trained to go into ministry representing him, one who had shared the table with him, and one who had shared the most intimate moments of fellowship and should have been his teammate in ministry, betrayed him for a handful of silver. The reproach of Christ. And then you think about the councils. The councils where they made the decision, let's crucify this guy. Who were on the councils? Pharisees and Sadducees and the high priest. The people that should have been serving with him, representing him, are the people that had him crucified. The reproach of Christ. Let's land on this passage. We'd be stupid if we didn't. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Let's just take this in for a minute. Let's just let this hit us. All of these things, these are just a few little snapshots of what happened to Moses and the leading the people. You really need to get yourself familiar with the book of Numbers. What a great book. You're going to see yourself in there, I promise. Listen to this passage in Numbers chapter 12. I don't see myself in this passage. Now the man Moses was very meek. This is right after the opposition from Miriam and Aaron. Right after that's shared in this passage. Now the man Moses was very meek. Another passage says humble. More than all people who were on the face of the earth. Now that's why we can trust that maybe at some point there was an editor for the first five books of the Bible because if Moses wrote I'm the most humble man on the face of the earth and he would cease to be the most humble man on the face of the earth but here I believe what it says that he's the most humble and meek man on the face of the earth and this is what happens to him man reproach for a man who left all the riches of Egypt a man who walked up from, walked away from success and favor and riches and opted rather for mistreatment with an oppressed people. Opted rather for exile with an oppressed or previously oppressed people. Now a difficult people. Stiff-necked, hard-headed people. And then took on the most challenging leadership position in the history of the world. Leading this people through the wilderness for 40 years. All these things and much more were done to the most humble man on the face of the earth. But he was fueled by something. Turn back to Hebrews 11. Let's see what he's fueled by. We've stepped away from Hebrews a little bit. Let's go back and grab our setting, our context, the point. 
He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh. Instead, considering the reproach of Christ better than all the treasures of Egypt. Instead, choosing mistreatment rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin. Instead, choosing rather to be identified with them than with Egyptian royalty. All these things happen, and it says here at the end of this passage, in verse 26, look at what's fueling him. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he is looking to a future, unseen, and hoped-for reward. This Greek word for this looking, what he's doing here, was used in art settings. This word for what he's doing, where he's fixing his eyes and focusing on some foreign thing, and it's fueling what he's doing, was used in art settings where an artist or a sculptor might look at a subject while they're doing a painting, and they don't take their eyes off the subject. They're painting, but they're focused on their subject. And that's what Moses is doing. He's fueled by and fixed on an unseen and hoped for thing of a reward. And you can only do this by faith. Because reason won't work. You can only do what he did here by faith. Trading reproach for treasures. Trading suffering for ease Trading these things we looked at, shame, mocking, hated without cause, attacked with lies, thought to be an alien and a stranger by your own family members. The talk of those in the gate taking on these things instead of ease and stature and privilege and reputation. Who does that? Who would do that? Faithful folk do that. That's the point of the Hebrews preacher. That's what faithful people do. That's not a superhero thing. It's what faithful people do. It's not even an optional thing. It's just what faithful people do. Now, I told you that by faith we're going to be our guide for the morning and that we were going to move progressively faster as we looked at the second and third by faith. So let's look at that second and third by faith. And again... The hard work, I'll tell you this, the hard work is over. But we're not done, so don't start thinking about lunch. Verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, this is a tricky passage. I said this is cliff notes. In a lot of ways, this Hebrews passage is cliff notes for the life of Moses. We don't know, though, if it's chronological or mostly chronological because there were two departures from Egypt. We don't know which departure he's talking about here. If he's talking chronologically, it's the first departure at the age of 40 when he's leaving because he's afraid of Pharaoh wants to kill him after he killed the Egyptian. Or it could be the second departure at the age of 80 when he's leading the people out of Egypt. It's hard to know which. The first time he left, it seems like he's leaving in fear, but there may be a faith element to it. There's some of the guys that I read that are just confident that that must be a faith element and they're calling it the faith of inaction that maybe he might have in his own efforts tried to muster a rebellion at that point mobilizing the Israelites but by faith he had to put that back in God's hands and then he went off to Midian they're calling that the faith of inaction 
or maybe it was at the age of 80, the faith of action as he approached Pharaoh during the plagues, demanding that he let the Israelites go, though Pharaoh was just getting madder and madder and madder. It's hard to know which they're talking about. Whatever the case, though, we can know this, that he endured, it says, by seeing him who is invisible. We don't know which point they're talking about, the first departure or the next, but we know for sure from this passage that what fueled his faith to leave Egypt in the face of an angry king was seeing him who is invisible. I appreciated what one of my commentators said, F.F. Bruce. He said, Moses paid more attention to the invisible king of kings than the visible king of Egypt. Yes. Man, that's... That's visceral right there, right? That makes me feel like a man. Just hearing that, thinking that. Yes, Moses. He saw the invisible king of kings more than he saw the visible, very real king of Egypt. By faith, he left Egypt. And the third thing in verse 28, the third thing we were going to consider this morning, I told you they were moving faster. This one's real fast. Turn to Exodus chapter 12 after, we, after I read this passage. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Let's look at what he's talking about. Exodus chapter 12. Let's just look at these little details of the Passover. Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I want you just to personalize this a little bit. Just to imagine if you're an Israelite, and you've watched the plagues unfold, and God has your attention. I mean, you've seen like hail that falls from the sky that crushes livestock. (laughs) You've seen a darkness that's so dark that it could be felt. I mean, I've never experienced that. Like in a cave, you know, where you're really dark and you can't tell if your eyes are open or closed. Darker than that. You've seen flies, frogs, I mean, gnats, locusts. It's been a crazy few weeks or months, however long it was. And God has your attention. And here's what God says to Moses in, verse, in chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for the household. Jump to verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Sounds cool, doesn't it? I mean, who doesn't like a lamb? They're cute. They're soft. You know, they bleep. bleep, Tiny, tiny little bleep. And they'd be, you know, they're small. I mean, they make a good pet, I bet. I've never had one in the house or anything, but I can imagine in that day that was kind of cool. So you're listening so far, you're like, oh, so sweet. I get to get a lamb and keep it until the 14th day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. What? (laughs) Yeah. Man, I just got to know this little dude. I just named him. Trigger. I don't know. (laughs) Just named him. You want me to kill him? What? And then they shall, t- and beyond that, beyond killing him, take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel, that's the upper part of the door, of the houses in which they eat it. Okay, so kill, trigger, 
and then take some of his blood with a, a hyssop branch and slather it on the doorpost and the lintel. Okay, you never heard anything like this before. Be an Israelite for a minute. You've seen the plague, so you, he got your attention. But he's telling you what to do. And you're like, whoo, man, this sounds crazy. And then eat the flesh that night. Okay, now that sounds good. Now, okay, I'll get over killing trigger as long as we get to eat trigger. But roast it on the fire with unleavened bread, yuck, and bitter herbs they shall eat it, yuck. Doesn't sound very good. Do not eat any of it raw, okay, good, or boiled in water, but roasted, yeah. Its head with its legs and its inner parts. Man, just about the time I think things are good here, they go bad the other direction, all over the place. And you shall let none of it remain till the morning. Anything that remains till the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, by the way. Sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. Man, look at the details here and just realize these are novel, unprecedented details. They would be easy to dismiss if you think about it because you don't have a reference for it. I've never seen anything like this unfold. I mean, I'm looking through the pages here before. I see sacrifice, but I don't see anything like that. A little wee lamb and slathered doorposts and eating it with the guts and stuff in it. Ugh. It's, it's a new deal. It's a new, new, strange, unprecedented instructions. And they're also costly. An unblemished lamb? I mean, you're a slave in Egypt. Do you think you just got unblemished lambs anywhere? you think they're easy to come by? I don't know how hard they come by, but I can't imagine that it's not hard to find. I mean, it's kind of hard to find an unblemished lamb. Most of them probably had blemishes. So I would expect to some degree, not only is it strange and unprecedented, it might be a little bit expansive. And it'd be easy to look at and say, man, that is just so weird and so stupid. But faith, though, says God said to do it, so I'm going to do it exactly as he instructed. And they did. Moses, by faith, followed the instructions to the letter, which is a good thing because what unfolds in these next few verses, what a night. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, even the oldest dog in the house, the oldest of the litter, the oldest cow in the field, if there are any left, that got smushed by hail, are going to be dead. Both man and beast, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, and look at verse 29, sure enough, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who is in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. God's instructions matter, right? And Moses said, man, we're going to follow him. We're going to follow him to the letter. His instructions are specific. And they matter because there's a lot at stake. Now, application. You've made it through the hard part of the sermon. I think this next part is easy. We Really, exposition. I watched y'all last week. It was funny. The visual feedback. Somebody asked me one Sunday, said, hey, can you see if I'm sleeping? I'm like, yeah, I can totally see you. Can you see my face? I can totally see yours. <laughs> like, I'm in, like I'm blind up here. Like I can, uh. But last week, it was interesting. During the exposition, it was like, oh, 
And then when we got to application, everybody perked up. I want to encourage you, pay special attention on the exposition. And then the application is just like, it just falls out, it just drops in your lap. But here's the application. Y'all paid attention this morning. You've done a good job. I know it's been some heavy lifting. But here's the reward. Application. There are three application thoughts. The first one is the heaviest because it's in keeping or in conjunction with that first by faith we considered. So the second and third are very brief. But this first one, and I'll, I'll let you know when we move to the second and third for your note. No okay, here's the first one. Faith is okay with not being called great. Faith is okay with not being called great. It is a very human desire to be called great. I thought about the disciples in Matthew 9. It says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man, think about what Jesus is teaching his disciples. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. Okay? You're a disciple for a minute. He's telling you that Son of Man is going to be killed. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. They came to Capernaum, I guess their destination, and when he was in the house, he asked them, Hey, dudes, what were y'all talking about on the way over here? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. <laughs> They're walking with the King of kings and Lord of lords, the great I am. He's telling them that he's going to suffer and die, and they're arguing about who's the greatest. It's a very human desire, a human nature. I will never forget. I can't remember if it was Redwood National Park or Sequoia. I don't, we were in the Sequoias or the Redwoods. They're both really big trees, woods. You feel really small. I'll never forget being in those woods and hearing two little kids argue about who was taller. I'm taller than you. No, I'm taller than you. And they're like both trying to get real tall. I'm taller than you. And they're standing underneath sequoias. <laughs> That's like what these guys are arguing about, who's going to be the greatest. While they're walking with a redwood of greatness. But it's human nature, man. We want to be great. But Moses, though, surrendered greatness as the world would have defined it. If any of that stuff was true from all those historians, he was pretty amazing. He gave it all up because he wasn't driven by worldly greatness. Faith is okay with not being called great. Faith is okay with others thinking that you're messed up. Egyptian high buddies coming after him. You're stupid, Moses. That's ridiculous. You had your life going for you. Faith is okay, though, with others thinking ill of you while you're being faithful. Remember that the Hebrews preacher is writing to a church his brothers and sisters who are considering bailing on Christianity and going back to the respectable Judaism. Do you know that there was a rumor during the early church, a rumor about the early church in the first century? I know for sure. I don't know if it followed on, that they were cannibals because they took the Lord's Supper. A bunch of cannibals. I mean, you can just almost hear it. A bunch of, have you heard they're cannibals? Yeah, they take body and, and blood oh all kind of stuff that went along with being a Christian in the early century, first century you were considered a Jewish turncoat 
You took more abuse from the synagogue than you did from the Roman Empire. Man, you could see I'd be a nice and inviting thing to fall back on. And he's encouraging them with a reality that God's true people will not abandon their identity with Christ's community in favor of physical security or social acceptability, no matter how difficult it gets to continue to be true. Man, that's what he's encouraging them with, and I hope he's encouraging. I trust he's encouraging us with that today. If you are faithful and you are walking in a way that's faithful, you're going to do some stuff that your Egyptian high buddies are going to say, man, you're stupid. You've been duped. You're a lemming. Man, what are you, part of a cult? I mean, think about all the crazy stuff people can say. What are you doing? You're going to take a beating if you're faithful. That's the point for the Hebrews church, and that's the point for you. Are you prepared to take the reproach of Christ? Are you? Are you willing to bear the reproach of Christ? This thought hit me about Christ's work. Listen to this little account. It's brief. A demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. How awesome is that? Is there anything better than that? And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. What? What a bunch of jerks. What a bunch of jerks to call what he did Satan's work. I see things like that, though, and I realize, man, if we're faithful as a church, if I'm faithful as a man, if we do what God calls us to do and are what God calls us to be, we will bear his reproach in some way. Jesus, they accused him of doing Satan's work. Man, he reminds his people in John chapter 15, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Contemporary Christianity has said, man, come follow Jesus and you're going to have the wind to your back. And God is good all the time. God is good all the time. God is good all the time. Baloney, man, sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's hard to follow him. Sometimes it's hard to represent him. Sometimes it's hard to lead God's people. When the Christian establishment, the church establishment, is backbiting and maligning and mocking and sitting at the city gate talking about how messed up you are. You may have believing, professing family members who are saying, what are you doing? What are you doing in a church with elders? <laughs> What's wrong with the pastor? Like, oh, let me explain that to you. It's not like a foreign thing. It's in the Bible. What are you doing with a church that practices church discipline? What is that? That sounds bad. No, it's, it's in the Bible too. Some of you may be beaten up for being a part of this church by people that profess faith. That's what's hardest thing in the world for me. But are you expecting it? It's not an excuse to be obnoxious. But are you expecting it when you're faithful that you not you might bear reproach, you will bear his reproach. 
It's a given. You're going to bear shame. You're going to bear mocking. You're going to bear reproach at the hands and mouth of God's people. That's what happened to Jesus. It wasn't the prostitutes and the tax collectors and fishermen that were maligning Jesus. Think about that for a minute. Who was maligning Jesus? The religious establishment. Man, Satan's got no better ploy than to work that way. But I'm going to tell you right now, when this comes at the hands of God's people, it's the saddest moment of all. Golly. It's the hardest thing about ministry for me when I hear about what other churches or folks in other churches might say about you or me or us as a church. That's the hardest thing in ministry for me. I want to hurt somebody. Or I want to say, come, taste and see. Look, it's not bad. Or look, it's in the Bible. I want to defend myself, and then I'm led to, man, give an account for the hope within if you give an opportunity. Or maybe at times being a sheep before shears, silent. Moses got this from fellow Israelites. Think about that for a minute. He got this resistance from fellow Israelites and from his brother and from his sister and from his own people, and it must have hurt. I'll tell you right now, it does hurt. If you want to be a meaningful part of an accountable people, others are going to look at that and say, that sounds oppressive. It's like, no, it's not that at all. It's a people that want to walk with each other in meaningful ways. It's two or better than one. When one falls down, there's another there to give them some help. Faithfulness is easily twisted. I wrote something on my wall years ago when I had that office, that little small office, and I put it on a piece of paper, and I don't know where that piece of paper is, but something occurred to me. It said, the faithful and the crazy look a lot alike. The faithful and the crazy look a lot alike. But I want to ask you these questions, just a couple of questions. Will you celebrate it? Will you, if it happens to you, count it all joy? Samantha read it this morning. It's fitting. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is James, likely the brother of Jesus, now converted. Post-crucifixion and resurrection, one of the brothers, apparently, if this is James, the brother of Jesus is now the bishop of the Jerusalem church, the pastor of the Jerusalem church. And he's writing to his brothers there in Jerusalem, right under the flagpole, who must have been taking the worst beating from the synagogue. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. These things that you feel like are an assault against your faith are the refining instruments of your faith. You need them. Count them joy. Man, they're treasures. Romans chapter 8 says this. People all talk about assurance all the time. But it's so funny because we're kind of calling into question the assurance that someone might find because they have something written in the front of their Bible about their baptism date. It's not a bad thing, but you'll find your insurance in there. It's not in there. Or if it is, it's false assurance. Most of Greenville has one of those Bibles and has no use for the church. 
Romans 8, 6 to 8, here's assurance. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. The Spirit, capital S, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Let that hit you for a moment. What assurance is from this passage is his spirit is bearing witness with my spirit that I'm his, provided I'm bearing some reproach. If you never experience any sort of reproach for your faith, doesn't it make you wonder if you really have any? I'm not encouraging you to be a jerk. I'm not encouraging you to be obnoxious. But I'm calling you, as we're being called, to be true in a context that has been largely duped. I'm not saying everybody out there, but largely. People that think that they're square with God because they made some decision at some point in time, yet they have no relationship with God's people. Not walking with his people in any way. And won't unless somebody's sick or unless somebody died. And there's a little flame, a little flicker of faith there for a moment. And And whether it's the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches... Or whether it's persecution that comes on account of the word, that rocky soil, whether it's thorny soil or rocky soil, we got a lot, of, a lot of other kind of soil in our community. It's not all green, not all dark, loamy soil, unlike the sign used to say. Isn't that ironic? In our context, we call it all dark, loamy soil. But you know, the Bible, if you're looking through the lens of our Bible, things would say otherwise. Man, his spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're his, provided you suffer. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you, Philippian church, granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The irony for me is we're thinking about suffering today and thinking about people maligning, thinking about some of these other things that we considered, this reproach, uh, talking about us at the city gate, attacking us with lies, that brothers and family members think we're aliens, that we're hated without cause, that we experience shame and mocking. Those things are very real suffering. But the irony is not lost on me that we prayed for Christians on the other side of the world this morning. We started our morning that our brothers and sisters, sons and daughters are being martyred right in front of them. Man, that ought to call us to be potent in what little suffering we might experience. And to count it all joy. And to run to it. And to celebrate it as assurance. And to know we've been granted it. Man, I told you we were going to land this morning on exhortation from Hebrews chapter 10 and 13. So turn there. Hebrews 10 and 13. 10 first. The exhortation in this book, in this letter, Hebrews, throughout, is to suffer well. Hebrews 10, look at verse 32. Recall the former days, Hebrews church, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Remember the old days when you suffered well? Go back to those days, is what he says. And look over at chapter 13, 
verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city is to come. We seek the city that is to come, an unseen and unrealized reality that becomes so clear, so vivid, so an object of your focus that it fuels your movement here. Remember Hebrews Church when you suffered well. And Hebrews Church, let's go outside the camp and suffer with Christ as an outcast. Willing to not be great. Faith is willing, too, to pass on the pleasures of Egypt. I thought about this 40 years, 40 years, 40 years breakdown. Stephen broke it down into three chunks. God broke it down. His 40 years moved in the opposite direction of the American dream. The American dream says work hard for 20 or whatever and start moving in the direction of retirement eventually for 20 or 30. Work in the direction of ease. Moses worked by faith in the opposite direction. He wasn't fueled by any sort of American dream. And what it looks like is a man that didn't love the world. And in fact, loved it less and less with every passing 40. One of my commentators said it is only by faith. This is Raymond Brown. It's only by faith that a Christian can decide not on the things which please himself, but on that which pleases God, exalts Christ, and helps others. You can only ever hope to do that by faith. I told you there were three things. That was the first one. The second and third are about a sentence apiece, so hang in there. The second thing is faith is willing to leave Egypt even if the powerful folks in your life will be angry. Imagine how much influence Pharaoh must have had over Moses. He lived 40 years in his household. He would have effectively been grandpa. Through adoption, grandpa Pharaoh. Imagine how much influence he must have had. And him being mad must have been like really, really hard on Moses. But can you endure seeing him who is invisible rather than those in your life who are quite visible and quite vocal objecting to how you may be moving as a Christian? If you are faithful, I promise you, you will have visible folks vie for more influence in your lives than the invisible. There's a book that I would recommend every believer read, When People Are Big and God Is Small by Ed Welch. If you haven't read this, I urge you to read it. If you need a copy, we'll get you a copy. If you can't afford a copy, don't let that keep you from reading it. Some good teaching in there. Because it happens to all of us where people get bigger than they should be. And we get more afraid of people than we are of God. Focus more on people than we do on God. We are to fix our eyes on the ultimate, not on the immediate. The third thing 
is faith follows God's instructions meticulously, even if they seem strange to the world. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that we made it through this sermon. I'm thankful for just a remarkably attentive people. I marvel at the things that we're able to engage, and I know and believe with everything in me that that is the work of the Holy Spirit, and we give him complete glory, give him complete credit. If we apprehend anything true about you, then we enjoy that it's because the Holy Spirit was at work. God, I'm thankful that we had this, the chance this morning to consider the life of Moses and that we had a chance to consider what reproach looks like. God, I pray, pray that we will be faithful to bear it well. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.